Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have not kept yourself hidden from us, but you have shown us who you are and what your will is for our life. And so this morning as we go through Colossians, the beginning of chapter 2, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts, that you would make yourself further known to us, that you would make your plans and your, uh, your history of redemption more uh, full, more real to us this morning, and that we would leave after reading through this passage together, glorifying you in a more complete way. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, uh, I was on Facebook uh, a few days ago, and while I was on Facebook, I saw someone post that we are officially past the halfway mark of this year, which means there are now more days behind us than there are in front of us in the year 2020. And I'm sure as some of you hear that, you're thinking, it did not come soon enough, right? Uh, There's many people that are kind of uh, done with this year. And uh, as I was uh, reading that post, uh, a question kind of came to my mind. If you had to describe the year 2020, In just one word, what would it be? And as you answer that question in your mind, just remember, we are in church, okay? So if you had to describe the year 2020 in one word, what would it be? And as I asked that question of myself, the word that came to my mind was struggle. And maybe some of you can identify with that a little bit. But, uh, you know, earlier this year, for example, I struggled just with the idea that, uh, that I was going to have to stay in my home for an unknown amount of time uh, and, and be kind of ostracized or isolated from, from other people. Uh, because I'm an extrovert, right? I like to be around people. Uh, and so I had a hard time fathoming that uh, for, for weeks and weeks, that I was going to have to kind of restrict my social interactions, uh, Abby and I struggled to, to, to move all of our work life into our home. Uh, you know, it kind of messes up your rhythms. It messes up your work-life balance a little bit. That was a struggle. And, and, and if I'm being completely honest, it's, it's a struggle even on a Sunday morning to come into this building and not be able to embrace every single one of you as, as you walk in. It's a, it's a struggle to look out this morning and see you all in masks rather than actually see your smiling faces um, because you just love my jokes so much. You know, this is, this is a struggle for me. And I'm sure some of you feel the exact same way. Uh, some of you have struggled financially, for example, this season, during this very unexpected time. Some of you have uh, struggled. Parents, I, I know you've struggled certainly with, with uh, earlier this year kind of uh, taking on this role of school teacher. Maybe you weren't used to that. And you had children now coming into your home uh, that you're used to sending out for several hours a day uh, and being taught. And now you have to take that on uh, yourself. And now you're struggling because the school year is done. You're not having to teach them anymore. But now there's nothing to fill their time, right? There's nothing to to fill the summer. And so that is a struggle. This word, this idea struggle, is certainly a fitting description of our lives right now and over these uh, past several months, which is why I think we should should pay particular uh, uh, interest in our passage this morning. Because in it, the Apostle Paul uses that same word, struggle, to describe his own life. In fact, in the very first sentence of this, of this passage or of this section, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle 
I have for you. And this isn't the first time that Paul has used this word. And actually, Colossians 2.1 is really just a continuation of what Paul has said in uh, Colossians 1.24 through 29. And, and there Paul says that he struggles in order to make the mystery of God known to the Colossians. And before we get too far, there's really a couple things that we need to know about Paul's struggle here. The, the first thing is that it is not insignificant or petty. This is not a, a small struggle that, that Paul talks about. Not only does he use the word great to describe it in Colossians 2.1, how great a struggle he has, but even the word he uses here is, is where we get the word agony or agonize. And so when Paul says he's struggling, this is, this is a significant struggle. It is not small. It is not minor. The second thing that we should know about it is that this struggle is not just physical. Now, certainly Paul has encountered a great deal of, uh, of physical discomfort due to his faith. In fact, uh, the, the book of Colossians is one of the prison epistles, and I'm sure you can guess why it's called that. Paul is writing it in prison. Uh, he has been persecuted because of the gospel that he preaches, and so absolutely he has experienced on many levels physical discomfort or physical struggle. But, but even though that is true, I'd argue that actually primarily Paul's struggle is a spiritual one, more than a physical one. Because throughout his letter, he's sure to remind uh, the Colossians that he is praying for them. And even in his final greeting in chapter 4 of, of Colossians, he says that Epaphras is always struggling on behalf of the Colossians in his prayers. So in other words, Paul's prayers for the Colossians... In his view, in his estimation, they are not just kind of good thoughts that are coming their way. But his prayers are actually a weapon that he is using to battle, or as, as he says, to struggle against the spiritual forces that are seeking to destroy the believers in Colossae. But the question we really should be asking is, why should Paul's struggles matter to us today, right? We are not Colossae. We are not that church. We're not experiencing what Paul is experiencing even. We're not experiencing what the Colossians are necessarily experiencing. Well, I think, I think we, can, we can consider this passage relevant and important for a couple reasons. One, uh, just on, on a simple level, I think Paul is a great example of what it looks like to struggle biblically. So he does not use this struggle. He does not use his experiences as a platform for victimhood. He does not use it uh, as an opportunity to complain or to whine or to seek pity. But instead, he actually says that he struggles on behalf of the church. And that is, that is what he wants them to know, that he struggles on behalf of them. He wants to build up the church through his struggles. But also we'll see in our passage this morning that, that Paul hopes that through his struggles, the church, and that includes you and me, would attain three specific things. And that is biblical knowledge, biblical relationships, and biblical living. And those are the three things that I want us to focus on this morning. This is the, the kind of ripple effect that Paul is hoping will, will come from his struggles. Biblical knowledge, biblical relationship, and biblical living. And so let's start with the first one. Paul struggles so that we might have biblical knowledge. 
Read the the second half of verse 2 with me. Paul says to the Colossians that he struggles so that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. In other words, God is making known something unique that is otherwise unknown, and it can only be found in God's revelation of himself. That's what Paul is saying here. There are parts of God and there are plans of God that we could not otherwise know unless they were made known to us. And this is why Paul writes what he writes to the Colossians, to to remind them that they have, in fact, received this knowledge, that the mystery of God has already been revealed to them through the gospel. And because of that, they can have assurance. They can be confident in what they believe, even when these false teachers are coming in and trying to add to their faith. There is nothing that needs to be added, is what Paul is saying. The riches of God's knowledge have already been established in their hearts and minds. Now, before we get too far into this idea, I think it's actually important that we, that we talk about what this does not mean. So it doesn't mean that all knowledge is in the Bible, that, that through the Scripture God has given us all knowledge. And this can sometimes be the mistake uh, that we make when we talk about, uh, for example, the sufficiency of Scripture or the sufficiency of God's revelation of himself, because there are actually many things that the Bible does not uh, talk about. There's, there's a lot of knowledge that's not necessarily represented in the Bible. And so, for example, the Bible does not teach us uh, open heart surgery, or it doesn't teach us how to, how to change our, our oil in our car. So he's not saying that uh, the Colossians have a monopoly or that you and I have a monopoly on all knowledge in the world. But what he is saying is that the knowledge of God brings with it an understanding of God's plan and purposes, and that should give us confidence even when we encounter the world's most persuasive arguments. And so an example of this uh, I I saw just a couple weeks ago, actually, in a YouTube video that was done by uh, the Hoover Institute. And in this video, you have three men that kind of came together, and the the reason for them coming together was actually to discuss the pitfalls of Darwinian evolution in their uh, own kind of estimations. And so on one side, you had a man named Stephen Meyer, who's uh, a philosopher. Uh, On the other side, you had a man named uh, David Gellernter. He's a, a professor at Yale in computer science. And then in the middle of these two men, you have a, uh, someone named David Berlinski, and he's a mathematician. So, so these are very intelligent, very educated uh, men. And the whole purpose of this collaboration, it wasn't really to debate one another. Uh, it wasn't to, to argue back and forth. Instead, it was more to speak on what they mutually agreed upon, that Darwin's theory at this point in time has proven to be mathematically and scientifically improbable in their own estimations. And so the facilitator of this conversation is calling on on each person and and letting them kind of give their reasons behind their their position, their conclusions. And when the conversation moves to Stephen Meyer, he starts talking about um, specifically how how each strand of DNA is is essentially pre-programmed in order to uh, make up a certain uh, pattern or make up a certain genetic code. And so because of this, Meyer concludes that the theory of intelligent design is a much more likely, uh, 
explanation, a much better handling of the science than is the theory of evolution. And so in response to this, Gellinter, who's the, uh, the Yale professor, uh, to, uh, to respond to, to Meyer's kind of claim to intelligent design, he says this, If there was an intelligent designer, what was his strategy? How did he manage to back himself into so many corners, wasting energy on so many doomed organisms? What was his purpose? And why did he do such a slipshod job? Why are we so disease-prone, heartbreak-prone, and so on? Now, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you, as you kind of hear these questions that are, that are in uh, this professor's mind, I'm sure some of you are thinking, I know the answer, right? You, know, you, wanna, you wanna raise your hand and kind of uh, give a response. Now, what I haven't mentioned at this point in the story is that Stephen Meyer is not just a philosopher and a brilliant philosopher, I would say, but he's also a Christian. And so it's at this point in the conversation that, that Meyer's able to go beyond the science and beyond the mathematics and he is able to provide a meaningful response to Gellinter's doubt by pointing to the reality of sin. By presenting this kind of theological framework that informs the way he understands the world. So you have three brilliant men in one room, all of them really reaching a lot of the same conclusions, agreeing on a lot of the big points that are being discussed. And yet only one has an answer to the problem of evil in the world because only one has a mind that's been filled with the knowledge of God's mystery. And not only does Paul struggle for the sake of biblical knowledge, but second, Paul also struggles that we might experience biblical relationship in fact, it's, it's really through biblical knowledge that, that we experience biblical relationships. Really, all three of these points that we're going to talk about today are, are more like dominoes that with one kind of leading into the next. That's going to be important for us uh, to kind of remember this morning. And so how does biblical knowledge then lead into biblical relationship? Well, I would actually uh, say that it happens in two ways. So uh, the, the first way is that the knowledge of God unites the people of God. The knowledge of God unites the people of God. So in verse 2, Paul hopes the Colossians' hearts would be encouraged, he says, to understand and know God's mystery. And the result of this is that all of them would be knit together in love. That's the, the phrase that, that Paul uses. This is kind of the, the hopeful outcome that he has for all of them attaining the knowledge of God's mystery, that their hearts would be knit together in love. In other words, Paul's message not only speaks to the mind, but it also speaks to the heart. That as we come to gain a knowledge of God, it's that knowledge that actually unites us, that establishes a love for one another within our hearts. But not only that, in fact, I would say even more significant than that is the reality that the knowledge of God also reveals the person of God. The knowledge of God reveals the person of God. See what Paul says in, uh, in verses 2 and 3 of Colossians chapter 2. He wants the Colossians to reach all the riches 
a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in other words, gaining knowledge for the sake of knowledge, Paul is saying, is not the gospel message. Paul is not proposing this kind of uh, model of enlightenment whereby you gain more and more information, you gain more and more knowledge. And that eventually kind of leads to this spiritual awakening sort of experience. If you, if you read our, our church's mission statement, and, and you can now, you know, go out in the lobby as you leave today, it's on, on really big letters on this wall. It does not say to know facts about Jesus and to make facts about Jesus known. It says to make Jesus known, to know Jesus, to make Jesus known. Biblical knowledge is meant to lead to biblical relationship. And this is really why if you're a a parent, for example, you should actually be encouraged and thrilled that Heidi and her children's ministry team uses a curriculum called the Gospel Project. Because every single lesson, every single piece of information that is given in our children's ministry program is ultimately designed to point them back to Christ, who he is, and what he has done on the cross. The knowledge of God reveals the person of God. And something else that I think is is interesting about this passage is that on, on one hand, Paul says that he struggles so that the Colossians would know the mystery of God, which is Christ. So he wants them to know Christ. And then on the other hand, he says that Christ himself is knowledge and wisdom. And so this is kind of an interesting uh, use of words. Know Christ, but to know Christ is to know, right, is, is essentially what he's saying. So this is, this is interesting. That is, Christ is the embodiment of wisdom, In him is hidden all the knowledge of God, and and only through him can we actually understand the divine plan and purposes of God. And this is why Paul, even though he's he's writing to address a a very specific situation, very specific false teaching that's, that's present in Colossae at this time, he does not spend his letter dissecting and tearing down argument after argument after argument. Instead, he spends his letter almost entirely pointing the Colossians to a better understanding of Christ. That is the purpose of this book. Because in Christ, Paul is saying, is the knowledge of all things. And here's why I think that should be particularly encouraging for us this morning. Because there has never been more knowledge available to us than there is right now. And yet there is also, in my estimation, which granted is maybe not that high, but there seems to never have been more confusion in the world than at this time. We have never had knowledge so easily at our fingertips, and yet we cannot decide things like, should a baby have the right to live or to die? We have never had more knowledge available to us in our lifetimes And yet we cannot decide what it means to be male or female. And the list can go on and on and on. But in all of this confusion, the reason we should be encouraged is because Christ stands 
right in the middle of it. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. And in him, we have direct access to the treasure that is the ever-steady mind of God. And so, Paul struggles that we might have biblical knowledge, which leads to biblical relationship, which then finally leads to biblical living. So look with me in verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. When I read this verse uh, earlier this week, it reminded me of uh, a poster that used to hang on uh, my sister's wall. It said, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Very convicting. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, a phrase that we, we throw out there a lot in Christianity, to, to walk in Christ or to be in Christ. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to walk in Christ? Well, Paul helps, uh, helps us understand that idea by providing three participles in the next verse, verse 7. He says it means to be rooted, to, built, to, uh, to be built up, and to be established. When I read that last word, established, uh, this week, a thought came to my mind when, when Abby and I moved to uh, Fishers from, from Ohio. Because when we moved, we said, this is a place where we want to be established. And so what that ended up really meaning is that, you know, we ended up buying a, a house. Uh, we've invested in it. You know, we've, we've tried to make it a home. We want to raise a family here. And much the same way, I think Paul is telling us, make your home in Christ. Establish yourselves in the hope that is the gospel. But even more, Paul also says to be not only established, also be rooted and built up in Christ. In other words, don't become stagnant in the treasure that you found in Christ. Marvel at it. Ground yourself in it. Build your life upon it. Christ is not just the starting point, Paul is saying. He is the whole point. If in Christ we truly have all the knowledge of God, then there is no cap on how deep we can go in our communion with him. There is no limit on how broadly the gospel can sweep through and affect and change every part of our lives. And then Paul provides a a quick test so that we actually know we are, in fact, rooted and built up and established in Christ. When all these things are true, he says, we will abound in thanksgiving. You see, when you truly experience the grace of God that has been demonstrated so deeply through Christ, there is no more fitting response, no more natural response than that of thanksgiving. Not just, not just moments of thanksgiving, not just the, the, the quick prayers that we pray uh, before meals where we thank God for the food, but it's this idea that our entire lives would actually become a platform of thanksgiving because we have tasted the goodness of the gospel. It has changed us on every single level. A heart that has been united to Christ is a heart overflowing 
with thanksgiving for what he's done. A mind that has been filled with Christ is a mind that will never reach the bottom of the riches of the gospel. That is why Paul struggles on our behalf. That we might actually encounter Christ Jesus, the Lord, and walk in him. That we might have the knowledge of Christ, a relationship with Christ, and a life that is for Christ. In, in reading this, uh, this passage and, and prepping for this sermon, I thought of, of that well-known section that's in St. Patrick's Prayer. And I think it's actually a very fitting conclusion to our time together this morning. And so I just want to close by reading it for us. In this section, it's towards the end of his prayer. St. Patrick says this, Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ within me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ at my right. Christ at my left. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. May that be our prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have made yourself known to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I pray that he would be our focus, that through him we have received all the knowledge of God. And so I pray that that would affect us on every single level of our lives. May it change us day by day by day and unite us all together. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.